You've tuned in to a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast. 20 Minutes with Tim Markwitz. Hello, literary alchemists. I'm Dave Robison. And I'm Moses Siragar. And you've tuned in to a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast, 20 Minutes With. 20 Minutes With is our chance to sit down with some pretty badass authors <laughs> and discuss their craft so we can improve our own. Absolutely. And badassery is the order of the day, I think. Moses, welcome back to the wingman's chair, dude. I'm glad to have you. It is great to be sitting here, man. Uh, and life is good for you? Very, very good. Working hard, working hard. Uh, my novel got my uh, edits back from David Farland. He sent me some notes. He uh, volunteered to blurb it without me even asking him, so that was pretty sweet. Uh, he, he seemed to like it, so I'm feeling good. My readers seem to like it, so I'm, I'm feeling good. But I still got a lot, lot of work to do, and today we're here to talk to Tim Arquitz. That's right. That's right. But, but, dude, we're always happy to hear that you're that you're rocking the word count and impressing the heck out of impressive people like David Farland. That's that's badass. So awesome. Then, uh, yeah, Moses, uh, let me let me clue you in on something. Let me let me let me share one of my secret strategies that I employ when I start to stalk. I I mean research uh, <laughs> uh, one of our one of our guest hosts. I search for them on Google Images. Okay. Now, see now what comes up is this sort of this this visual tapestry of, of direct <laughs> and indirect associations. It's it's like a it's like a snapshot of that individual in the context of the internet. Wow. Now frightening frightening and awesome. <laughs> well, thank you. Yes, and it is, especially in the in the context of our guest host. Uh, because because <laughs> through this fractured kaleidoscope of disjointed imagery, uh, I learned a great many things about our guest host, but most significantly I think is the profound and disturbing evolution of the chin beard. Now, there is nary a photo of him without chin whiskers. Uh, and in recent snapshots, this this hair suit adornment has been cultivated to such epic proportions that I am declaring a new style of facial hair, the chin axe. Any, yeah. any beard that looks like it could be used to chop wood or hack appendages from your body. So look out, Patrick Rothfuss. There is a contender for the title of Beard of Power. <laughs> now, while facial hair has nothing to do with writing, it has everything to do with the writer. And the evolution from conventional beard to awesome chin axe is actually a superb parallel for our guest host's emergence into literary fabulosity. Uh, behind every good writer is a good mother. And our guest host's mom was a voracious reader, and she was only too happy to inflict that addiction upon her children. Time and again, she would usher our guest host and his sister to the library and allow them to check out whatever they wanted. Now, he feasted liberally on sci-fi and superhero tales, but it was the fantastical tales of magic that seized his young imagination. And for those that know him, it should come as no surprise that it was Michael Moorcock's Elric, one of fantasy's grimmest and most tragic heroes that took root in his young mind. Now, it's widely known that fantasy tales are the primary gateway drug to role-playing games, and it didn't take long for our guest host to be rolling dice with the best of them. Uh, and to further augment the alchemy of his creative spirit, when he was around 12, a buddy showed him the first Venom 
album, Welcome to Hell. Now, up to this point, our guest host had been wandering, unsatisfied, in the wastelands of rock and roll. But now he knew how he liked his music. Dark, confrontational, irreverent, brutal, somber, and depressive. He went metal, and he never went back. Now, at 15, shortly after a friend of his saw people dressed up as elves and wizards in a local park thwacking each other with foam-covered sticks, our guest host became a LARPer. He joined AmpGuard, which began a decades-long love affair with live-action roleplay and beating the crap out of people with sticks. Uh, But, more importantly, it introduced our guest host to a community of kindred spirits and fostered a new level of engagement and appreciation for fantasy storytelling and beating the crap out of people with sticks, uh, which is not to be overlooked as a pastime. (laughs) Uh, Now, there are many jobs between now and then, including bouncer at numerous clubs and bars, grave digger for five years. Yeah, what a shock, right? Uh, (laughs) And a host of others. And, And trust me, Moses, when I tell you, it took a lot of restraint on my part not to include some of his exploits regarding foam parties, being buried under a pile of new teenage girls and being propositioned by prostitutes in exchange for convenience store burritos maybe this is my this is my i'm not shocked face (laughs) indeed indeed we'll 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 save all of that chit chat for perhaps another time now i i think the most passionate role players all try their hand at writing at one point or another, and our guest host was no different. Uh, around 1995, when he was dabbling in tough guy noir stories and dark poetry, a buddy showed him a novel that he'd written, and something sparked in our guest host, a realization that he could do that too, and he did. And then, after getting a pile of rejections from publishers and agents, he demonstrated the keen strength of character to admit that his execution sucked. Now, friends, here's a helpful writing tip pulled from the pages of our guest host's experience. When you realize your writing needs work, join a writing group. And that's what our guest host did. And the group helped him enormously, opening the way for him to write Armageddon Bound, the first of his Demon Squad series. And bam, our guest host was published. He almost immediately got an agent. Everything was Skittles and beer. And then six months later, he left the agent because they were too busy to help him. And he also discovered what a vast ocean the internet was in terms of marketing and promoting your work. Reality had reared its many hydrant head and bit him in the ass. But he never stopped striving to be worthy of that first big break and writing the best stories he can. And friends, he most certainly has. In addition to his Demon Squad series, the seventh of which, Exit Wounds, was released just this past July, our guest host has written and edited a veritable cornucopia of dark and delicious prose, including appearances in the anthologies Triumph Over Tragedy, Corrupts Absolutely, and Dem- Demonic Dolls. He edited the Angelic Night Press anthologies Fading Light, an anthology of the monstrous, and Manifesto UF, UF standing, of course, for Urban Fantasy. 
Now, I will also mention that his stories appeared in Neverland's Library and the upcoming Neverland's Shadow. And he co-wrote the Dead West series, Those Poor Poor Bastards and The Ten Thousand Things, with Joe Martin and Kenny Soward. And edited the successfully kick-started Kaiju Rising. And... We'll have a tale in the upcoming Blaggards Anthology, funded on Kickstarter in just three days. Now, why, you may ask, do I offset those last and splendid examples of literary badassery? Because they were published through the mighty Ragnarok Press, a dark and fiercely bold new voice in the pantheon of badass publishers, where our guest host sits astride a blood-soaked throne as editor and chief and co-publisher with the aforementioned Joe Martin. So, dear friends, all the way from Texas, where he lives with his wife and daughter, a pack of obnoxious cats and a dog with canine Tourette's, drinking the occasional Budweiser and listening to Duran Duran ballads in his closet, dear friends, welcome to the big chair at the round table, Tim Markwitz. Tim, I I cannot thank you enough for taking some time from editing so much badass literature and beating people with sticks to make time for us here at the round table. We really appreciate it, man. Well, thank you very much for having me. And after that intro, I I think we're done. (laughs) (laughs) That's it, folks. Good night. (laughs) Thanks. Bye. We've beaten Tim enough already. (laughs) (laughs) Let's let's not waste any time then. I'm gonna I'm gonna set the clock here and we're gonna dive in to our 20 minutes with with Tim Markwitz. Um, So, Tim, I'm going to start with kind of one of those funky, broad questions just to warm things up a little bit. Uh, uh, In in an interview on uh, the Bastard Books blog, you stated uh, that your goal has always been to write great books. And... I'm that instantly sparked a question in my mind as to what you uh, as a veteran author and editor estimate to be a great book and, and no fair referencing Jim Butcher, Clive Barker or Stephen King as a contextual framework. (laughs) (laughs) You know, for me, the idea of writing a great book is, is really about entertainment. Uh, I mean, you know, obviously there, there are books out there that, that, teach lessons or, or dig into the, the human psyche and, and things of that nature. But for me, I personally want to sit down and read and write a book that is similar in a lot of ways to a movie. It's entertaining. I, I don't need people to walk away from it constantly thinking of, you know, some life issue or something that came up in it and, and, and really pondering that, that uh, psychological point or anything of that nature, I want them to walk away and go, you know what? I I had fun the last two hours or however <laughs> long it takes to read the book. You know, I want them to enjoy it. I want them to sit down and go, you know what? That was awesome. I want to do it again. You know, I, I don't care if they learn anything. I don't care if they, you know, if the prose is they compare it to say Mark Lawrence and go, you know, you know, that's kind of crappy in comparison. You know what I mean? That's not my concern. You know, I want them to walk away going, you know what? Yeah, maybe it had a typo or two, but damn, I loved it. <laughs> so, so what, what constitutes in, in, in that context then, uh, uh, that entertainment factor, what, what are the qualities that define uh, a good walk away from it going, ah, that was fun. I think pacing has a lot to do with it. you, in my opinion, you want a, a little faster tale. Um, 
I like George Martin's books, but you know, when you have 12 pages of what they're eating for dinner, it slows me down. <laughs> I, I, I can, I can appreciate the words, but I'm not going to walk away from it remembering the meal in not at least not in a good way, <laughs> you know? Right, right, right. Uh, in this case, I think, I think you have to get to the point. You, there has to be a measure uh, of terseness to the writing. It has to be direct. It has to be blunt. Um, what about the, what about the characters and, and the character arcs they're in? Cause you know, Frank, Frank Trigg is, is a broken son of a bitch. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, I, I think I like different characters. Um, in the case again, like Mark Lawrence, I, uh, George, uh, he's broken. Just like you said, you know, he, there, yeah. there's a lot of issues there. There, there's a lot going on that you can't really understand. Why is he this way? You know, um, as it goes on, you get to see that. But, you know, up front in Prince of Thorns, he's very direct. Uh, and I like that. I, I like that kind of character that is damaged, but doesn't try and hide it so much. They are who they are. Okay, so so it's, and, and, and again, in the context of the Tim Markowitz universe, uh, uh, I, I know that there's, there is no, though, happily ever after, there's, there's as happy as you can. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think really the thing that unites all of this discussion so far would be Elric of Melnabone, <laughs> I think. Is that how they say it? I don't know. It's yes, I little... say Melnabone, but. Yeah. Okay. It's got the little thing at the end, you yeah, know, top it does. of the E, and you think it's, you know. But uh, yeah, I, uh, I think it's really cool that you're an Elric fan. Now, he, uh, the Elric books, you know, Michael Moorcock is the author of these books, if you're not familiar with them, dear listener. But uh, th- these were the books that me and all my friends in high school. I was born in 75. We devoured. <laughs> <laughs> we, we all devoured. We, you know, we, we passed those things around like something forbidden, you know, and Absolutely. Couldn't, wait, couldn't wait to get our hands on them. Um, so I think that's really cool. I didn't know that about you. And I think it's a, it's a, it's a good example of what you're saying. Um, you know, stories that move fast with a, with a broken character who is real, who's who he is. Uh, and uh, the world is, you know, that world is so neat. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, as a fan, as a, you know, also as a fan of Michael Moorcock, what did you learn from, from him as a writer? You know, did you pick up any tricks? Did you uh, absorb anything? Is it, you know, more osmosis or did you, are you conscious of any of that? You know, I, I think more visualization than anything. Um, like I go back now and I, I, I read it. I, I have a hard time getting through it because the prose is so, um, I don't want to be disrespectful. I, you know, it was amazing back when I was younger, but I, I think it's it's dated. I think the way he writes is very stale to a certain degree, kind of like Lovecraft. You know what I mean? There's there's something to it. The ideas are stronger than the writing. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, I, I did have the similar experience going back and trying to read it, and and yet at the same time, I, I saw some of the things that were so compelling. You know, when I was younger. Well, and the one thing to keep in mind about pulp writers uh, uh, and and writers of that era, and I know Moorcock came in a little after that, but they were getting paid by the word. So, <laughs> so they were totally padding their paycheck with some, with some of the purple prose that they would infuse with their, with their awesomeness. And you yeah, can I, see it. Yeah. Yeah. You can. It, it is, I don't know. I don't know. It's been a while, but look, the, the Elric books are pretty slim. There's six of them, but they're pretty slim. So I'd have to go back and read to see if I agree with that on that series. But uh, you know, it, I, I do, I will admit I didn't get that far. I've read some, some of his other stories though, that I hadn't read before. And uh, I remembered things like the way he would describe a sword or a weapon. <laughs> I mean, no one that I have 
we'll probably ever read will describe a weapon the way Michael Moorcock would describe a weapon. I mean, it was like he's making love to this thing in his mind. Absolutely. Yes. Yes, he was. (laughs) (laughs) And it's part of what probably made it so awesome when you're a teenage boy. But uh, at the same time, you know, it's a it's a cool technique. So he's a good one to study if you want to see a fantasy writer who is really good at describing the key sort of artifacts or weapons on on his hero. His visualizations are amazing, and, and, and that's what drew me in, is the fact that when I sat down, I could picture Elric, I could picture Stormbringer and Mornblade and, and these weapons and, and the character that he gave them, the personality. Yeah, it and- wasn't just... Hey, it's a sword. I pull it out and, you know, whatever. And I think that's the key right there is that Absolutely. It, it, wasn't ju- it wasn't just the sword, but it was also the context of the sword. And seeing that sword, you knew there was a story there. Yeah, and and, and those weapons are characters in their own right, which is pretty sweet when you think about they it. Are. You know, like, are. Yeah, yeah and, and, you, and, and I noticed you said the word visualization, you know, right away when I asked you this. So I, I, I figured we were kind of on the same wavelength with that one. So Yeah, we are. We are. That's, yeah. that's what I'm talking about is how he how he draws his images in text. You know, he, he goes from, you know, the characters walking down the hall where you're kind of like, yeah, whatever. But when he gets into the, the, the imagery, that's where he really shines and the atmosphere. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. God, it was like Cthulhu. It, it was like Cthulhu meets epic fantasy. Yes. We'll be back with more of our conversation with Tim Markwitz after this brief promotional break. Hi, I'm Nuke Chas, the host of Nutty Bites. And hi, I'm Tech, Nutty's regular guest. Or antagonist. Our podcast is like a call-in show where geeks get to debate topics about speculative fiction. We don't really debate. Sure we do. We debate topics such as lame superpowers, the best villains, and our favorite apocalypses. We more like rant, rave, and then have massive nerd rages. People call in from all over the world, sometimes minor celebrities, and we've even had some supervillains show up. Do you ever notice that you never have any superheroes or good guys? I'm a good guy. Compared to what? Antagonist. Not really a guest. Nutty Bites. Nimlast.org. Now, let's get back to the conversation with Tim Markwitz. So, Tim, now you you clearly have a very strong uh, uh, aesthetic when it comes to your fiction, uh, the fiction that you write. Uh, and and you have a long list of credentials as an editor as well, and I'm curious to know where do you draw the line when you're when you're editing a story, when you're editing an anthology or or just uh, you know perusing a story that's come into Ragnarok. Where do you draw the line between the the story and your own storytelling aesthetic, or or do you? You know, to a certain degree, I have to keep those separate. My style is different depending on what I'm writing. Um, the Demon Squad books are a certain way, whereas the Blood War trilogy is written a completely different way, almost a different voice. Um, being a little schizophrenic like that helps when it comes to reading <laughs> you know, other people's work. Um, but at the same time, there are certain things that, that I feel need to be there. There needs to be an impact at the beginning. Um, it needs to strike me. Um, not only with the prose, but it needs to strike me with the content from early on. There has to be something there. If you're opening with, you know, the standard weather and you go through, you know, three or four pages of the weather, <laughs> you know, chances are I'm going to fade away. I'm just going to, uh, next. Yeah. Uh, uh, in this case, um, 
I really take the context of what the story was meant to be based on on the the query that comes into us. If it comes in and says, oh, it's supposed to be supernatural horror, I want to look at it in that genre. I want to look at it, hey, this is what it's supposed to be, so it's going to have these aspects and and – uh, if it's urban fantasy, I'm looking for certain things, you know, that aren't necessarily what I write, but are what I feel are the the trademark qualities of that style. And then I go through it and 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 then kind of grade it as an overall thing, as long as it catches me from the beginning and I make it through. Okay. See, and I honestly, we we could probably do a whole twenty minutes with just on what are those those signposts of urban fantasy of of you know uh, paranormal horror, supernatural horror. What what are those signposts? And actually, I'm it's my show. I'm going to do what I want. Uh, Tim, why don't you walk walk us through just for urban fantasy? Because holy crap, urban fantasy is like the the great shining star of genre fiction these days. What what are the trademarks in your estimation of, of a good urban fantasy tale uh the the primary one in my estimation uh for what that's worth <laughs> right. is is attitude you know what i mean there has to be an attitude uh the character the writing doesn't have to be in first person though it usually is um but the the character has to an, express uh an attitude that's a little out of the norm you know you 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 can't have this wallflower urban fantasy character it just does not fit the style you have this be a swagger yeah there there's this noir uh old school maltese falcon kind of grittiness to it as well you have to have those combined and and the focus what i feel is urban fantasy is very character focused all the way around all of the characters are are expressive. All of the characters stand out. There, there are not so many sideline characters who don't stand out. Mm-hmm. Whereas in regular fantasy, you have a lot of them that are kind of just off to the sidelines. In urban fantasy, it's very, very tight knit that 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 small group of characters that you have, but and they all fit into that attitude. To the point where you could almost have a spinoff of a secondary absolutely because they're, yeah, they're yeah. that well developed yeah that's that usually is 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 indicative of these type of characters of these type of books like if I go through and you know we, we talk about Dresden Files in this aspect I can go through and and you know you you list all the characters that are there that you see day to day in these books and every one of them you could they could split off and 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 hold their own. Well, and you know, going back to your to your background and, and writing those 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 crappy tough guy noir novels as a kid, uh, it seems to me, and and please correct me, because uh, I'm I'm coming at this from a layman's perspective, but it seems like there's a strong lashing of the noir ship to the urban fantasy ship. There aren't a lot of urban fantasies that don't have a very very strong noir influence on them. And and have you observed that, or am I just slicing from a very narrow slice of the pie? No, no, no. You're you're very correct on that. Um, obviously, like the the Anita Blake, the Laurel K. Hamilton stuff that started right. early, right. Um, that kind of drew it in. Um, you know, my history in urban fantasies. Yeah, I, I can't pull everybody out. But when you look at the 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 big top contenders like Dresden and Alona Andrews and stuff like that, you have these 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 noir characteristics that are part of it. And I think those are what separate it from general fantasy, that modern day 
neighborhood attitude that that grittiness that 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 comes from the ghettos and you know in the case of dresden it's chicago you know what i mean mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. those those environments are as much a part of the book as as a character is yeah yeah very much so setting in fact sherry priest has, has observed that as well with her steampunk stuff that yeah that setting is as important as uh, is is a character in the story very much so Let's go to the Neverlands here. Um, oh, yes. Never, yes. Neverland Shadow is an anthology being put together by uh, Sean Speakman and Roger Bellini uh, from Grim Oak Press. And you are a part of this anthology, Tim. And uh, the names on this list, you, you, you must smile when you see your name <laughs> next, next to the names on this list. <laughs> Not, yes. And you yes. deserve to be on that list, my friend. I, the, the reason I said the Neverlands is you, you have a story uh, I read earlier this year in the Neverland's Library Anthology. And that story was fantastic that you wrote. Thank you, and I, sir. I would recommend everyone out there who loves anthologies, check out Neverland's Library. And I, as I wrote, I think in my Amazon review, your story alone was worth the price of admission, which... <laughs> you did, and I smile at that, too. <laughs> in my daily scroll through, you know what I mean? Because that's, right. yeah. that's what every author's doing, is checking uh, out of course, Amazon of course. reviews. You bet. And Blackguards, obviously, you know, that's the anthology coming out uh, through Ragnarok, you guys sponsored the Kickstarter. You had the goal set at what was the funding goal initially set at? We set it at uh, at fourteen five. Okay, so fourteen thousand five hundred, and you hit that in three days. Is that right? Yeah. Okay, so and and it's still going. It's still doing its thing. I mean, uh, at this point, it's it's you know our listeners when they hear this, it's still going to be active. They can go and and, and check it out, and uh, they can you can see why. Uh, I know I, I signed up, and I'm, I'm getting hardcover and some other fun stuff. <laughs> that actually raises a, a, an interesting point. I, I've noticed, you know, especially from Ragnarok, not that Ragnarok is not producing novels as well, but there, in the world today, in the world of genre fiction, you've got your John Joseph Adams, you've got your Ellen Datlow's, you've got a, a veritable buffet of anthologies going out there. And and Tim, what what's your take on that? Why why suddenly is the anthology enjoying this this renaissance in in the genre fiction community? I, I think it has a lot to do with the the societal change towards the uh, the the shorter attention spans. I, I I hate to say that, but it's it, it's more of a, a TV show. People want to watch series but they want to watch them in small snippets they don't they don't want to sit down and and watch a four-hour five-hour movie they want to sit down and get a little piece be teased come back the next week and do it again and do it again and do it again Um, i think anthologies cater to that you don't have to sit down and go hey you know i'm going to read this this 800 page you know story and Oh, man, it's going to take me weeks. Right. In this case, it's like, you know, hey, I'm going to go to bed. I'm going to read for 30 minutes. I'm going to read a story, you know, from an author who's already written stuff that you know is good that you've read. And I, I, I just think it's, it, it's an easier way to digest what is uh, a, a modern trend towards these epic novels. <laughs> sort, sort of the, the counter answer to that. To that uh... Yeah, very much so. I also wonder if uh, literally Kickstarter and Indie, Indiegogo and sites like that, but mostly Kickstarter when it comes to anthologies and writers, it seems they tend to use that more than the other options. But is Kickstarter itself a reason that these things are having a resurgence? I mean, it seems like it does create this opportunity. You know, you put together a good, a good list of authors, you put it out there, it's professional, uh, you have 
uh, a reputation, a good reputation as Ragnarok. Um, and many other people do this too. I see this all over the place. I've seen a number of people yeah. create, creating those Kickstarters for anthologies. So I, I think it aids in the process. I don't necessarily think um, that the resurgence is because of Kickstarter. I think it helps it. Um, a lot of the anthologies that I've seen that go on there, unless they have a big name quality to them, they don't fund um well and that's that's the other thing is that w with a novel you have one name and one fan base to draw from absolutely with, with an anthology you've got 20 and when you're pulling in authors like ragnarok is pulling in on their anthologies you're bringing in a huge fan base that are going to say oh hell yeah i want my favorite author i want another story from my favorite author and oh coincidentally i'll get these other awesome stories as well I, I'm, I'm curious, Tim, like from the publisher's perspective, if you're looking at doing an anthology, is the fact that you can put it on Kickstarter, like, does that allow you guys to do better, frankly, than you would if you didn't have Kickstarter, you know? Well, it's, it, it's well, yeah, yeah. The, the reality is, is, is financial. Uh, when it comes down to it, when you look at, you know, I, I'm not going to give out s certain specific details, but when you look at the, the lineup that we have for Blackguards, um, with the stories that we have in it currently, it's going to run us around $10,000 just to pay the authors. Sure. That's not counting printing, shipping, any of the bonuses. Um, you know, we, we actually, we set it at 14, five and realistically we would still have to come out, you know, five, $6,000 for us to put this book out. Yeah. Which is why it's awesome to see, like, as we're recording this, it's uh, 22 days to go on the Kickstarter. There are 556 backers who've donated uh, or pledged $18,625. So uh, crossing my fingers that that just continues to progress organically. Ragnarok's <laughs> going to make its nut. And that's what we're hoping. Yeah, you know, the thing is, a lot of people think that that money's going to all end up in our pocket. <laughs> you know, it, it's not going to. It really isn't. It, for Kaiju Rising, we spent way over what we earned. You know, when you figure Kickstarter takes fees, there are taxes on it. Mm -hmm. So you're automatically losing two, three thousand dollars off the top. But if not for Kickstarter, this is it. I mean, is it safe to say this it would, might, might not have come about or it would not have come about. I, I can guarantee it because there's no way we could have come up with 20 grand to cover one book. That's a maybe, right. you know, yeah, most likely given the, the lineup, it would have worked. We could have done pre-orders, you know, and, and we take it as that's kind of what we're doing. We're doing special yeah. pre-orders. We're giving people the opportunity not only to buy the book in a limited hardcover, but you know, we're, we're giving them the opportunity to get these bonus things that no one else is going to get when they buy the book retail. And it also allows us to pay the authors a, a nice, comfortable fee rather than, you know, nickel and dime them. Amen to that. Right on. Right on. Yeah. Kickstarter is fabulous. It, it, it has rejuvenated, uh, uh, I think, a lot, not just the anthologies, but I think I think the love and the, the appreciation for what goes into the crafting of a book that ends up in your in your iPad or on your shelves at your local Barnes and Noble. Absolutely. Yeah, I, yeah. I hadn't I hadn't even thought to mention it, but I am actually I think in within a week or two I'm gonna have my first Kickstarter ever, which is terrifying and thrilling at the same time, you know. <laughs> it's nerve wracking for sure. <laughs> <laughs> you can totally count on me to put up a promotional video, Moses. Oh I, I will totally rock and I and I do a good promotional video too, so 
I got you. And you know, Ragnarok will stand behind you too. Whoa, that's huge. Oh my God. Thank you guys. That's huge. Well, gentlemen, uh, uh, I'm sitting here, I'm looking at the clock and uh, its skin has turned gray. The jaw has (laughs) gone slack. Blood is oozing from its mouth and it's shambling toward me with, with dark, dark design. I can only assume that means that we're out of time, which... Tim, I'm just going to ask it right now. Can we have you back at some future time? Because there's more I want to talk to you about. Of course. I'd I'd be honored. You're a gentleman and a scholar, sir. Just don't spread that around. (laughs) I think our our listeners also deserve to know if you are actually listening to Duran Duran. You know what? I've listened to two songs of theirs. They're both ballads. They were when Mm -hmm. I was growing up. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, I'm a heavy metal guy through and through. But, but they're, I'm not ashamed of it. I love these songs, but you know they don't they don't creep up like they used to. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> they don't roll around in the playlist quite so exactly, often. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, see, I'm not going to slander anybody in their intro, Moses. So everything I say out there is factual. <laughs> I've stated this. I've stated this. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Mo- Moses, what are you taking away from this uh, this fabulous 20 minutes with Tim Markwitz? Uh, I just want to know how you know how Tim writes so darn good. <laughs> well, you know that was. That was that was what we were going for. That was what we were trying to figure out. For me, I I I, I appreciated the um the, the the drawing attention to the idea of pacing, uh, and as as a young writer uh, in in craft, not in age, uh, but as <laughs> as a, as a new and a, a aspiring writer, I I appreciate hearing the fact that you know sometimes you just got to get down to business and write the damn story and and keep the pace brisk. Uh, Absolutely, and and not not worry so much about crafting all of the details. Let the reader fill in the blanks because it is a collaborative experience when you're reading a book and writing a book. So it most certainly is. All right, well, friends, we're gonna have Tim back in one week's time. We're gonna workshop, and what a surprise this is—a grim and dark tale. <laughs> so so you've got a week to 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 salivate and ponder the possibilities thereon, uh, and that's that's kind of a long time. So Moses. What do you think our listeners should be doing for a week? Think about a book that you've been telling yourself for years that you want and need to read and start reading it. Good. Yes, absolutely. Break break out of that 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 uh, rut of reading that you've done and read that thing you want to read. And friends, I will tell you as always that you find what you're looking for. So look for the good stuff, baby. Look look for the bright packaged ribbony stuff waiting under your tree. And dear friends, I promise you, if you look for it, you will find it. We'll be back in one week's time. Until then, you guys stay cool, be frosty, be awesome, and we will talk to you soon. Bye bye. Bye bye. This episode is copyright 2014 by the Roundtable Podcast and released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means please don't sell it, but you can share it to your heart's content. You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. Theme music for the Roundtable Podcast was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown. Gary Gold, David LaBroyere, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation or just learn more about us, visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. 
We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast and on Twitter at writerspodcast. And you can always email us at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.